0: Hi, this is Paul from Archinect Sessions, and this is a special mini-session in partnership with the Los Angeles Design Festival, taking place in downtown LA from June 8th to 11th. My conversation today is with Andrew Zago, LA-based architect and educator. We talk about growing up in Detroit, early inspirations, working on Tom Maine's iconic 6th Street House, his so-called unusual early work with Jeff Kipnis, and his approach and thoughts on the current state of architectural education. So where are you from? Detroit. You're from Detroit. What is Zago? What nationality is that?
1: Oh, my parents were Italian
0: immigrants. Oh, really? Okay.
1: Yeah, I was born, my older sister was born in Italy, Uh and I was born right after my parents emigrated to Detroit from just outside of Venice, actually.
0: So you grew up in Detroit?
1: Yeah, yeah. Born and raised in the city. At some point in uh, around high school, you know, my parents left the city, which was part of you know, the trend at the time of sort of a white flight. So that would have been in the 70s. So I, I, you know, graduated from a high school in the suburbs, but otherwise I was a product of Detroit public schools.
0: And then did you study architecture right out of high school?
1: No, no. I went to the University of Michigan. I studied fine arts Mm -hmm. and, you know, worked in that, you know, as as a sort of struggling artist for a couple of years. And then I went to Harvard and studied architecture there as a graduate study.
0: Were you originally wanting to be an artist?
1: Well, it's funny. Yeah. My, I mean, my father, he always worked as an architect in the United States. He was what is known in Italy as a geometra, which is like, I suppose, country architect is what you have in rural areas. And so when he came to Detroit, he always worked on, uh, you know, actually big Taubman shopping malls and things like that as a kind of head detail Person. So I had a little bit in my family and I have an older cousin who had studied architecture at Cranbrook, but then went on into painting. And so I, I had a little bit of both of them in my background, but I really thought I was going to go into fine arts.
0: So what initially sparked your interest in architecture?
1: Well, it's an interesting question. I was in Chicago, actually, when I was—I well, had a loft and I was there right out of undergraduate I mean, so I always kind of knew about it, but I didn't know much about it as a kind of, let's say, an artistic discipline. Probably of all things, even though there's very little to do with my own work, the only experience, exposure I had to it as an undergraduate was someone's, a faculty member suggested I go hear a lecture of Stanley Tigerman. And then when I was in Chicago, having a chance to see some of his projects, it was probably, you know, the the thing that made me realize that architecture could be something of an unusual and exploratory field.
0: So you studied architecture at the GSD, and then did you start practicing after finishing your your studies?
1: Yeah, you know, what I did, I came directly to, I just, I hated Boston. I moved to Los Angeles because that was about as far from Boston as I could get <laughs> in the <laughs> continental U.S. Yeah. And through a friend of mine, Paul Lubawicki, who had been helping Frank Gehry's studio at, at Harvard, and we, we became friends, told me that this fellow, Tom Maine was looking to hire someone. Who I didn't know who that was and ended up there uh, at Morphosis and did the Sixth Street House drawings while I was there.
0: Ah, the house that has just gone on the market is that right? For, yeah, it's, it's uh, they're leasing it. I see. They're I leasing see. It. They're not selling it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He didn't have a job, but he saw my drawings and he said, "Well, I have this publication. A plus U wants to publish this house. It's this version. It's not going to get built." And so I executed the drawings, and and that was my experience while I was there that summer. Tom was busy, so I I taught a studio for him at SciArc. That was still like Ray Cappy's last year. So I began teaching at SciArc. After that, I stopped at Morphosis. And a fellow who had been a teacher of mine at Harvard, Baram Sherdell, he moved out. And the two of us started a practice called OxRuno with a mysterious sounding name. So we, we ran a practice in L.A. for a number of years, probably Six or seven years was the first thing I did right out of graduate school.
0: What kind of work were you doing in that practice?
1: Unusual work. And I, and I should mention then at the end, our, our last year, we started working with uh, Jeff Kipnis, whom we both got to know at the GSD, and uh, eventually he joined us in the last year of that practice. It it changed to Sherdal Zago Kipnis. We were doing a lot of things. The first thing that we did actually was for this fellow, Nick Patsouras, who was, I don't remember his exact position, but he was, you know, an official who was spearheading the Red Line, you know, the LA subway at the time. This is when Tom Bradley was still mayor, and he had this proposal to do this thing that he was calling the West Coast Gateway, a kind of, uh, I don't know if you'd ever remember this or heard of this, but this was the thing he was trying to do, which was supposed to be the, let's say, the Statue of Liberty for the West Coast. And it was to bridge over the, I guess that would be the 101 freeway as it makes it sway past what is now the, um, let's see, between Oliveira Street and Little Tokyo, you know, down through downtown. We did an entire, so he saw an article of us and the paper contacted us and we did this whole, kind of visionary master plan for an area of downtown Los Angeles and then helped him organize a competition for the monument itself. It was one that, um, I I don't know if they were asymptote at that time, but Hani Rashid and Lizanne Couture had won the competition. It was Neil Denari, I think, was a finalist, a number of other people. It never happened, but that was our first you know, so our, our very first project was very much urban and involved with the city, meeting with the mayor. This is when we met Richard Koshalik, when he was at MoCAD a number of other characters and then other than that we we did a lot of competitions and we became known somewhat for you know starting a, um some new design directions uh,
0: and and
1: um yeah, I think at the time we never we certainly never built anything. as Za know. yeah.
0: so how do you describe your work as an architect? Well,
1: I don't know if there'd be any easy way to describe that. I mean, you know, if if we were to say the term, it's funny, I'm writing something now trying to describe my work to a a slightly lay audience, and and I try to make the distinction, which may be not so unfamiliar to your readers, that the the profession is very, very broad. There's God knows how many millions of architects practicing around the world, but there's a smaller subset of people that really think of it as a kind of cultural discipline and try to wrestle with questions of the discipline and try to take it forward as a kind of creative cultural endeavor. I certainly have always strived to do that. And I work now together with my partner, uh, Laura Bauman, who's also a Detroiter. So we certainly do that. and, And we're quite proud of the fact that our work is, you know, on one hand gets built and it's kind of hardcore practice. On the other hand, some of the things we do gets mistaken for artworks. So we we like straddling that line. But the thing that I would say is that we're always concerned with is not seeing that kind of speculation as being at a remove from the world, but rather try to see what happens when, let's say, creative speculation that one does within architecture, what effect that has when that engages sort of real issues within the world. The urbanism, politics, et cetera?
0: Yeah, you know, I think it is a, a, a misconception among the public outside of the kind of relatively enclosed architecture community that architects do have a, a skill set that goes beyond just the perceived notion of architectural practice as just designing and constructing buildings. What do you think it is that qualifies architects to kind of expand on that, on that kind of traditional notion of practice into other areas?
1: Do you mean into other areas, sort of more aesthetically or more engaged in politically.
0: Well, as you mentioned, you know, the types of architects out there are very diverse. You know, what is the unique nature of, I guess, architectural education and architectural practice that provides an architect with a certain set of, of tools and skills to go beyond just the practice of, of designing buildings.
1: Well, that it's, it's interesting. I mean, we, we do, I remember my, my old partner and teacher, Baram always breaking the word down architecture as a kind of first construction. And this notion that uh, in, in, as an architect, you set up fundamental frameworks and relationships of things in which then life happens. So it's very different than like, I always try to explain to people and to students that in, in a fundamental way, architecture is not a design discipline. It's kind of more rudimentary than that design like the latest iPhone or something is something that you put into the world. But architects sort of have to set up the scaffolding of that world itself. This is, I think, what buildings do. This is when we, to the extent that we're involved with shaping cities, this is what cities do. And so I think it gives us a kind of sense of the diagrams that organize life. I mean, I don't mean to make it sound too too grand, but I think at some level it does do that. I often cite uh, Winston Churchill's famous quote that we shape our buildings thereafter they shape us. And so I think somehow we have, you know, whether we're good at it or not, the field has some capacity to be able to do that. And and so that's where I think it's how you shape it, I suppose, is the, the artistry of architecture and the fact that they then shape us or shape the world is the kind of um, engaged political aspect of architecture. It's unavoidable, I think.
0: So beyond your your work in your own practice, Sago Architecture, you are heavily involved in education, and you're currently at at SciArc, Is that correct?
1: That's right. I'm also a clinical professor at the University of Illinois in Chicago.
0: So how do you perceive that balance between practice and and education? Is are, are those two separate roles, or do they do they feed each other? How do you balance that?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I mean, at various times in my career, it's been balanced one way or the other. Um, I I find myself spending a lot of time teaching now, probably at this point more than than uh, I'd care to, but um, that, that's where I'm now. You know, I think to my mind, uh, what I bring to teaching is those things that I've gleaned and developed from my practice. So I definitely don't see it the other way around, as much as, you know, I've had great sort of experimental topical studios and seminars where, you know, work is, has happened that's, that I feel is important, has influenced my thinking about architecture. For the most part, I think it's been the other way around, where the office is the kind of laboratory and then things get brought. You know, I can bring that to, to the students as uh, part of my teaching.
0: What do you think of the current state of architectural education?
1: Uh, <laughs> not not too highly. I don't know if I get around to lots and lots of places, but I get around to a fair number of schools, and I know people that are teaching other places. You know, I I, I don't mean to sound self-serving, but I think CIARC in the last ten years or so, certainly the years that Eric Moss was there, and now very much with Hernan, and at UIC since since Bob Solmel has been running the school, there are two places that seem to have a fairly clear idea about not only what they are, but that architecture as a discipline is something that we should not be apologetic about and we should embrace and encourage the thinking that goes on, even though the two schools in in many ways uh, represent very different positions within the discipline. I think both of them embrace that and try not to imagine that a lot of the other important concerns that affect architecture that has to do with critical things, the health of the world, of economy, of of social justice, that these things don't suddenly become easy ways to avoid the difficult discussion of what it means to actually teach architecture itself. And and I think a lot of schools are finding themselves in that kind of um, trap.
0: What do you think it is that's holding other schools back from Kind of moving forward and addressing more critical issues for the field.
1: Well, it's a couple of things, and you know, UIC is is an exception because it is within a university, and it has to do more with the the strength of characters. But I think there is something that is always that I've always noticed about architecture. This is something that that in fact uh, Henry Cobb talks about at some length when he was visiting SciArc a couple of years ago. You know, the fact that almost every school of architecture is within a larger university on one hand is great for the amount of resources and different points of view and and different kinds of expertise that can be interacted with. But on the other hand, architecture in the end is a kind of studio practice, and it's not a scholarly pursuit, although there's a lot of scholarship within architecture. And I think in academia, it has an uneasy relationship. It doesn't work like a humanities. It doesn't have a research component the way engineering and some of the sciences do. It has both of those, of course. We have architecture history. We have, you know, various kinds of technical studies. But what happens, I think, within the university is then architecture programs feel compelled to define themselves as these things because they're so important. The university understands it, even if it means relatively little to what it means to sit in the studio and produce work. I think CyArk is able to, you know, it has a kind of, as much as it's very, very difficult for it to just be a standalone institution, it has also the advantage of not having to feel the anxiety that it ought to behave like engineering, or it ought to behave like one of the other fields that the universities understand quite well.
0: Before we finish, I'd like to quickly just talk about the two cities. So you grew up in Detroit, you've been living in LA for a long time. I guess, uh, how would you describe the uh, those two different cities in their current state that each is in?
1: Yeah, very different. Uh, I was just thinking about this, you know, because I had a, a practice in Detroit for a number of years and, in fact, still have clients and, and do work there. I, I just joined the uh, internationally Advisory Council at MOCAD, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Detroit, which my partner and I designed back in 2006. So I have, you know, a, a long relationship with both cities. So it's it's funny. And I was of, think of another firm that's had offices simultaneously in both. And I think it's Victor Gruen is <laughs> probably the last one after, you know, when, when he was developing the shopping mall and, and years after that. But other than that, boy, they're about as different as one can imagine two cities being. And I, I'm quite passionate about both. Detroit is always a bit of a love-hate relationship because it is so dysfunctional in so many ways. And, and even with the renewed attention paid to it, it has so many Deep, deep structural problems in terms of depopulation and and um, and the causes behind that—not only the losses of the major automobile industry, but you know, institution, virtually institutionalized racism in terms of the setup of the metropolitan area. You know, L.A. is just—you have to almost be comparing it to a handful of. Just enormous world cities, whether it's New York or Paris or London. So many things are happening in Los Angeles at any one time that no one can possibly have a a sense of the entire cultural and design field uh, here. Detroit, there's a lot of things happening, certainly, but it's more like a kind of very interesting urban project. You can understand the city. You can see its problems. It's, it's a fascinating sort of tableau of, of things, that, things that can happen in cities, you know, if you follow its, its trajectory through the, the 20th century and into the 21st century. So they're, they're very different. And Detroit, in a certain way, is it's big, but it's much more of a small town, I suppose, than, than Los Angeles is.
0: I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Make sure to check out the show notes online at Archonnect.com to check out some of the work that was brought up in this conversation. If you're able to attend the LA Design Festival, make sure to check out the live panel LAXDET, discussing the connection between LA and Detroit, a collaboration with the Detroit Design Festival. The event will be taking place on June 10th from 2 to 4 p.m. at ROW DTLA at 777 Alameda Street featuring Edwin Chan, Chris Denson, Lorcan O'Herlihy, and Eileen Lee. Thanks, and talk to you next time.